Welcome to World of Dads, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Oren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph and GP of Flex Capital. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Greg Lugianov. Greg is the president and CEO of the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, or FIRE. Greg's also the best-selling author of several books, including Coddling of American Mind and most recently, The Canceling of American Mind, which I both read and I both highly endorse. Greg, welcome to World of Das. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to dive in. Now, one of the things I've asked a lot of people on this podcast is we talked about cancel culture. It's one of the main topics people like to talk about nowadays. And there's some sort of consensus that we might be at like peak cancel culture, but I'm guessing you might not agree with that. How would you rate (laughs) the strength of cancel culture now? And do you think we're like peaking or do you think we're still got a ways to go? I mean, according to data, the worst years for cancel culture on campus, and that's where we have the best data, particularly when it comes to professors losing their job. And by the way, this is overwhelmingly concentrated in the top 10 schools in the country and also the top about 80 schools in the top 200. So it's very much like much more an elite college problem. The worst years we've seen for professors being fired or suspended were 2020 and 2021. But that number, it had to go down. You eventually run out of People to fire or something. Yeah, Yeah, which is to burn. Or people moderate their speech so they don't get fired. Moderate's putting it lightly. They (laughs) they self-censor like crazy. Also this past year, we saw the highest level of shoutdowns and violence in response to speech. And this is not counting October 7th, by the way. This is pre that. We're still catching up with the October 7th data that already was record shoutdowns in the past year. We saw that like Stanford Law School thing. and Oh, but also Yale. And people don't get, it's like, no, it wasn't normal for shoutdowns to happen at Yale Law School. Or when you look at shoutdowns typically in the past, when they're at elite schools, there's a handful of them, but they're usually undergrad. And Stanford's my alma mater. So I was particularly like, oh man, this is embarrassing for us. It's very interesting when you shout down an appellate court justice. These are the types of people like usually the law students really want to get clerkships with. And so if you're kind of known to shout them down, I don't know that the other, even the judges who you might like are going to be so excited to give you a clerkship. So it also seems like odd from a career standpoint to do. And I always have to emphasize that Kyle Duncan, the guy who got shouted down at Stanford, was a Fifth Circuit judge. To be clear, one step below the Supreme Court. And the exact type of person, whether maybe not him, but his colleagues, you probably want to get a clerkship with if you're at the school. And of course, that was a case where you got to see yet another example of in many cases, administrators, you know, working alongside students to engage in shoutdowns and cancel culture and all this kind of stuff, which is one of the reasons why we're always pointing out that the mass bureaucratization of higher ed is one of the reasons why it's so free speech unfriendly these days. We had another guest on recently, Jill Onsdale, who had mentioned just the rise in the number of administrators in these universities is just off the charts. When I was in school in the 90s, it had gone up in the 15 years prior to I go to school, it had gone up about 10x, it gone up about 1,000%, but it was still relatively small as a percentage of students. Now it, is, it may have gone up another just massive order of magnitude since then. And the number of ministers in some schools, it could equal the number of students or something. That certainly is more than the number of professors in quite a few schools. Is that part of the problem or? It's a big part of the problem. I mean, when it comes to the free speech problem on campus, A lot of it is the lack of viewpoint diversity that's been progressing. The fewer and fewer dissenters you have and the more politically homogenous you have, the more politically polarized you tend to get. Political polarization kind of spins away. And that's particularly true in the humanities, as we show some really kind of eye-popping graphs in the book of how unbalanced it is in those fields. But then when you also add to it this large administrative class that actually thinks a fair amount of its job is literally to police speech. And what I mean by literally are things like bias-related incident programs, which have in many schools replaced clearly unconstitutional speech codes with something where they try to make it just barely constitutional. But literally, my co-author, Ricky Schlott, absolutely brilliant 23-year-old, 20 when I started working with her, when she started at NYU, she had on the back of her student ID, here's the fire department, here's the police, and here's the bias-related incident program where you can, I think anonymously, because a lot of them are anonymous, report your fellow students or your professors for offensive speech. I've never heard of this before. Oh, yeah, they've been around for a while. Maybe I'm a bit too old. So what is it? I feel like there's some sort of bias in 
We're not talking about someone did a chemistry study and the study was biased. We're talking about someone said something in history where we felt it was like one side was overrepresented or something or the reason why they use the word bias prejudice is really kind of like what they mean but since the theory on prejudice since we weren't seeing as much prejudice in polling the term got replaced more with bias there's sort of like unconscious prejudice more or less reporting prejudice is kind of the idea and there was a study out of North Dakota State University of what students mean if they're offended by professors, is it like some of them saying something really uncouth, using rude words? What is it? And it was overwhelmingly, they expressed kind of more conservative ideas. That's why they should get in trouble. And it's like, okay, so like, this is very bald face. And we talk about a lot of examples of this in canceling the American mind. Because getting rid of quote unquote bias is not a bad thing. We all have biases. We all have lived experiences that might cloud our views and stuff like that. So trying to get to truth, if we're really trying to get to veritas, we'd want to get rid of some of our biases. In theory, that doesn't sound like necessarily such a bad idea. But when you look at how it works in practice, and also, and how I believe it's intended to work, it is very chilling of even some pretty basic discussion. We gave an example of a fascinating class taught at St. John's. We have the whole PowerPoint available that's talking about how China moving to the silver standard in the 15th century led to the first trans-Pacific trade in the 15th century after the Spanish you know, discovered South America. And it was a fascinating discussion. I didn't actually understand how deep the ties already were between the New World, Europe, and China in this respect, and how much that change actually affected so much of world history. And it was in a class all about what's known as the Columbian Exchange. Essentially, when Europeans discovered the New World, how much it changed the whole global economy in the course of history. And it's a fascinating PowerPoint to look at. I'm a history guy, and I learned stuff from it. Sounds super cool. One of the results of the transatlantic trade included the transatlantic slave trade. At the end of the class, they talked about, like, on balance, was the Columbian Exchange, was it worth it? Was it worth all the horrors that it brought? Probably a lot of war, a lot of destruction, a lot of people killing, obviously slavery bad. There's a lot of bad stuff that happens. That's literally the way it was framed. Let's be good historians to make it up. Now, there were about, I think there were something like a dozen people in this class. And then suddenly, hundreds of students were signing petitions to get this guy fired under this argument. To say anything other than it wasn't worth it would require you defending slavery. And therefore, this was a professor demanding that students defend slavery, which is just BS. Like, that's not what happened. He was forced out of his job, partially in, in the supercharged atmosphere of 2020. Any of these allegations could get you fired. And of course, disproportionately, the ones who tend to get in trouble are either professors who are leanable and more to the right, or in a lot of cases, a huge number of professors are ones that I would describe as liberals like me running afoul of progressives. I find that the people who are most canceled, I think generally you're more likely canceled by your adjacent tribe than by the tribe who's like three deviations of politics from you. So if you're in the red tribe, most likely the people on the red are most likely to cancel you. If you're in the blue tribe, let's say you're the editor of the New York Times or something, it's most likely people in the blue tribe who are going to cancel you. At least that's my theory about it, because it's much easier to cancel someone who's just one degree over from you than three or four degrees over from you. It's interesting what comes out in the data. And the book takes on both right and left. We don't try to pretend like cancel culture is just as common from the right as it is on the left on campus, for example, because it's not. Yeah, well, there's not as many people on the right. Yeah, exactly. In power to do canceling. But when it came to professors getting in trouble, about one third of the punishments actually initially started on the right. And that means Fox News. That means people like Todd Starn or Turning Point USA putting out, in some cases, things that left-leaning professors might have said that were obnoxious to Joe Average. But of course, the person actually doing the firing usually is on the left because administrators are supermajority left-leaning. But still, there are people who only care about free speech when it affects people they are sympathetic to or when the censorship comes from the right. And I try to kind of refocus them. Like, listen, if you only care about censorship from the right, then there's a lot to be concerned about when it comes to cancel culture on campus. If we just had your support, even just on these cases, which I don't think is very principled, but we'll take it in order to do the right thing. 
you mentioned October 7th, we've seen a lot of traditional narratives and battle lines be changed or somewhat rewritten. How has that surprised you? Or how has this free speech debate since October 7th surprised you? It's gone in several stages. Stage one was, well, first of all, students immediately, while the attacks, the horrifying attacks are still going on, Harvard students deciding to blame it entirely on Israel. It's like, okay, I, I think that's showing how ideological some of the students were. But you would say it's their right to do that. Oh, absolutely. I assume you're in the camp that if the Nazis want to march and they're allowed to march, or the most hated group is allowed to march through campus or something like that, you're kind of on the extreme free speech side. There's no right not to be offended. Still, I was kind of like, okay, maybe you could have waited 24 hours. So we saw that case come up. It came out right around when the book came out, and people were kind of like, well, that's not cancel culture when people get their job offers rescinded for being pro-Palestinian. And of course, you know, I was on a lot of these shows going, well, it is by our definition. And the clearest cut case, by the way, was one where a professor retweeted. He was a professor, but he worked for a private science journal. So it wasn't an academic freedom issue because it was private. He retweeted something from The Onion that was pro-Palestinian satire. And he lost his job for that. And I'm like, I'm sorry, that's cancel culture. It's about the clearest example we've seen. But I was a little bit taken aback by reading several articles that informed me that there was this new phenomena of people getting in trouble for their opinions on campus. And I'm kind of like, really? New? <laughs> Read this one that's kind of like, oh, you have to go back to 9-11 or McCarthyism to see anything like this. And I'm like, or maybe 2021? Yeah, or yeah, maybe the week before. Yeah, exactly. Maybe three weeks ago. So it was good to have the book come out right then to give more of a historical balance. Then there was another stage of the October 7th thing, which were the anti-Semitism hearings. And that's a huge mess, partially because you had MIT, which I won't talk too much about because I think I actually did it comparatively well. And I actually think that the president of MIT is trying to be better on free speech and academic freedom in general, and all, but also at the same time to clamp down on things that actually cross the line into threats, intimidation, harassment, all things that they shouldn't tolerate. Penn and Harvard had a little bit of a problem here because Penn and Harvard are not great on freedom of speech. Yeah, you know, it's funny how like, well, she just became freedom of speech on October 8th. It was like kind of convenient. We've changed our mind. We completely agree with Greg and Fire on October 8th, but October 6th, we didn't agree with him at all or something. Harvard has a better leg to stand on at least because Claudine Gay, when she started, she started much more recently. And she said in her opening speech, she talked a good game on free speech, partially in response to the fact that Harvard finished dead last in campus free speech rankings. Sorry, it's last? Dead last. Out of how many? Out of 248. So it's 248 out of 248. Yeah. Whoa, that's terrible. They can't have anyone else be worse than them? I guess they want to be first in something. <laughs> so the first in illiberalness, essentially? It was kind of funny because like initially there was a little bit of poo-pooing our stats on that and our ranking, which immediately gave me the opportunity to defend what our ranking is based on. It's based on the largest study of student opinion on whether or not you can speak on this campus and also alternatively whether or not violence is acceptable in response to freedom of speech. It's the largest database of professor cancellations, student cancellations, speech codes, and deplatforming. And we put it all together with pluses and minuses depending on how you handle it. And Harvard 100% earned its position as dead last. They got our first ever negative score. They got a negative 10.69, which we rounded up to zero. <laughs> <laughs> the second to last, Penn. So you have these two schools that are not good on freedom of speech. I didn't realize Penn was that bad as well. The bottom four were, interestingly, it was Harvard, dead last, Penn, second to last, University of South Carolina, third from last. Oh, I'm surprised. Because usually public schools are a little bit better on these things. Well, they're legally obliged to be. That's one of the fun things about data, though, is you're like, oh, that's interesting. I was kind of pleasantly surprised that UVA made it in the top 10 this year. Top 10 on the positive side. On the positive side, on the positive side. And number four was actually Georgetown. That's less surprising, yeah. Not surprising at all. Just from observing things, I actually thought Georgetown would be dead last this past year, but Harvard overachieved <laughs> yet again. Claudine Gay had been talking a good game on freedom of speech since she started, and I've seen some positive signs that she's taking it a little bit more seriously. Her stepping down in the face of the anti-Semitism hearing, I think, would have sent an unambiguous message that really 
what you need to be doing is clamping down on speech, period. Actually, no, not an unambiguous message, because really, like, a lot of what people were saying was, like, go after threats, intimidation, the stuff that shouldn't be protected. But I think the message might have been very much taken, just clamp down on free speech more in general. When it comes to Penn, though, McGill had been around longer. She had lots of opportunities to do better things for free speech, like stand up for conservative professor Amy Wax and say she's a tenured professor and she might say some controversial stuff, but she's still protected. Did none of that. Like I said, the Penn environment is not great for free speech, second to last. By the way, Penn always, like, they're always trying to be better than Harvard, but they're always just like, <laughs> just miss out. They just miss out. <laughs> we can't even be the worst. Yeah, exactly. So after the testimony, which I couldn't believe that Wilmer Hale was actually like the one that prepared these, both Claudine Gay, very reputable law firm. Yeah, yeah, with a lot of conservatives, actually. They're kind of well known for a lot of conservative lawyers there. But which somehow forgot either didn't get through or they didn't actually train them to be kind of like, hey, step one, how about you say anti-Semitism is a problem on campus and there's been horrible things happening. And by the way, all of these things that you're mentioning can be harassment and incitement, but instead they just mechanically repeated context. Yeah, they look like robots or something. It was so weird. It was not well done. But McGill, after that embarrassing testimony, the next day said, I might have been wrong. I think we're going to now de-link are policies from constitutional standards. And it's like, so what you're saying is you're going to give administrators more power to police free speech without standards. And guess what's been happening at Penn for the last 10 years? Your administrators have been policing free speech without standards. So you're just going to make it even more ambiguous, open up more opportunity to censor. And then, of course, there was a professor, uh, Professor Finkelstein, who, who's like the head of the Open Discourse and Academic Freedom Committee, wrote something in the Washington Post saying, Yes, we have to police free speech more on campus. <laughs> we have this fetish for free speech. It's like the Human Rights Committee at the UN or something. It's like run by Iran and <laughs> North Korea or something. Yeah, exactly. When she stepped down, there's no way we could say that that was bad for free speech, particularly for this big reason. I know your listeners should know about this. The same donors and alumni who wanted McGill gone had already been talking about reforms. And they're all about getting people talking, protecting speech, making sure that there isn't double standards, making sure there isn't viewpoint discrimination. And they came out with a vision statement on ways to reform higher ed that was very much focused on having a less ideological environment where people talk across lines of difference, actually having strong protections of free speech. All of these reforms to have less bureaucratization of the university, all these reforms that are phenomenal. So on the Penn situation, actually, I ended up in a situation of that actually giving me some amount of hope for the future. I still think, though, the solution to a lot of what's going on in higher ed are smart people like you and people you know coming up with cheaper, smarter, more rigorous ways to show who the best, brightest, and hardest working really are. Now that campuses are claiming that it costs 170000 I think was the latest number, to educate a single student for a single year. Jeez. They've always been making the argument that Tuition only covers half of the cost of educating people, but some of the more elite colleges now say it covers less than half. And it's like, no, I'm sorry. If you're saying that it's impossible to educate a single student for a year for less than $140,000, that's a confession that something's gone terribly wrong. Why does even all this stuff even matter? Only a third of Americans even go to college and very few go to these elite schools and even fewer work at these elite schools. And should we even honestly like even care? They're always doing weird stuff. Harvard's always in this weird bubble somewhere. And why should we care about this? I would love for the elite schools to be a lot less important than they currently are. But I definitely learned this. I was poor when I was a kid. I got to go to a place like Stanford and it was kind of a culture shock about how differently certain classes of people would suddenly treat you. It was like I'd suddenly become a legitimate human being. Because you have Stanford on your LinkedIn profile, and now all of a sudden people are like, oh, hey, Greg, hey. you can come to my party, here's some wine. And suddenly I find you handsome. Yeah, yeah, totally, yeah. And I got to tell you, like, it kind of irked me a little bit. It was kind of like, I'm no smarter than I was before school, but okay. And to be clear, I talk about Stanford being my first experience with what I refer to as decent, hardworking, rich folk. <laughs> and they were smart kids and they were hardworking. And I have a lot of respect for my classmates who went there. But at the same time, I think about my friend Anthony Rodriguez, who was at the time, I think, working as a mechanic, is now actually a professor himself. They think the jump is orders of magnitude of greater talent when it's kind of like, well, some of you guys lucked out. 
good parents or but also like fifth generation legacy yeah or you're like good at fencing or something oh, yeah. random <laughs> yeah exactly you know? it's like oh good at fencing that qualifies you to go to an elite school okay interesting exactly I had no idea that was one of the most <laughs> important things in our society is that someone's really good at fencing in case there's time travel totally you have to defend yourself if you happen to have a what's it called a rapier i don't even know like some french name for a knife <laughs> yeah because you have to battle the three musketeers rapier or a scimitar go even farther back oh yeah exactly that would be a little bit cooler actually that would be cool fencing oh man i would like that you're like fighting with nunchucks i kind of like respect you a lot more than one of those like little tiny swords <laughs> But unfortunately, if you look at like our politics, if you look at a lot of our corporations, like how disproportionately people favor graduates of elite colleges in the United States, I say again, I think is actually to a degree that I actually find unhealthy. I am pleased to see, though, that a lot of smart corporations, particularly in Silicon Valley, but also FIRE does this now, we don't require a BA anymore at FIRE. We have to figure out some other way to figure out how smart, hardworking someone is. I think that smart companies are going to be moving more towards figuring out these other ways. Because I think about when I do an interview at Fire, what am I looking for? I'm basically looking for a free speech nerd. Jane McGonigal had this really interesting presentation on this idea of edublocks, something where you'd have a ledger that could just keep track of books that you've somehow have verified that you've actually read and understood. And that's honestly an interview is what we're getting at. Is this something you would do if no one was paying you? Is more or less what you're looking for for FIRE? You're a free speech nerd like us. I feel like in FIRE, like if I was interviewing there, it's like, okay, well, they wrote this like interesting blog about it and they tweet about it. That could get you the interview. I guess this might be true in almost anything. Like if you're an engineer, it's like, well, well, you just created something. Like that would get you an interview. If you created this cool thing, if you're a marketer, you probably created something cool that you could show for probably most things, you could probably get an interview by just creating something on the side. As far as something that will get you an interview at FIRE, if you've written something clear and published it, making good points on freedom of speech, that counts so much more than graduating from a fancy. Because the thing I've definitely realized about a lot of the people who graduate from these schools is, first of all, basically, you're getting some very bright kids in many cases, not always. And then you just have to not ruin them is I think part of the scam, some cases of elite higher ed. And when I've had employees from there, and again, some of them are fantastic, but you never know if they know how to do really even some basic things. You don't know if they know how to write. You don't know if they have any like breadth of knowledge. Increasingly, graduates of elite schools, and this has been told to me by corporate leaders all over the country, there's a chance you're going to end up with someone who is a counselor, someone who's going to show up and be kind of like, you know that brilliant Aspie IT guy you have? Well, he sounds a little Trumpy, so he's got to go. And by the way, this company needs to be pro-Palestinian. It needs to publicly take all these positions. It's one of the reasons why in Casting the American Mind, we have this whole chapter on how to keep your corporation out of the culture war. There are real downsides to elite school graduates now. There was some sort of peak that happened in the corporations where maybe people are still being canceled in corporations, but it seems anecdotally, much less politics in corporations today than there were just a few years ago, let's say in peak COVID times. It does seem to be the case there. And one of the things I have found out when we were doing Canceling the American Mind is some of the people who were in the cancel mobs at various companies are no longer with those companies. So there was a case against, I always screw up his name. He got a job at Apple. Antonio Garcia Martinez. Yes. Yeah. Also a guest on World of Das in the past. I was turning him into another author. He wrote a book. I didn't realize it was a bestseller. He wrote a fiction book and he got a job at Apple. Nonfiction. It's a nonfiction book. Oh, it's nonfiction. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's a good book. Chaos Monkeys. It was a popular book and he got hired by Apple and there were all these employees who didn't like his book. So they pushed for him to be terminated and he was. But apparently, according to him, those employees are no longer with Apple. Oh, the people who led that hey, you should fire AGM. Those people were, are no longer at Apple. Yeah. Oh, I didn't realize that. Okay, interesting. I do think some of these corporations are figuring out ways to sort of heal from this. Here's the thing that frustrated me. The, the corporate leaders who are saying that we're getting this dysfunctional crop of students from elite colleges, they would tell me and Height in private. And then they would say things like, we don't hire from Ivy Leagues anymore. And I'm like, do me a favor. Tell everybody that. People are career-oriented still at most of these schools. And if some of these campuses are kind of like, oh, man, we're actually 
producing people that fewer people want to hire than used to, that could be something that could prompt some positive reform. Interesting. You kind of pinpointed, and you talked about it, John, and Hank talked about this as well, like the start of the wave was kind of like, say, 2014-ish. Why did it happen then? Why didn't that really not start earlier? Or why didn't it start later? There's something around 9-11 with the safetyism. Why 2014? We don't cover it as much in Canceling the American Mind. Why specifically 2014? Because we cover like so much of coddling the American mind. It's a social science detective novel, <laughs> detective book. Yeah, I love that book, by the way. Oh, thank you. About what was so different about students hitting campuses right around 2014. We now talk about seven causal threads about why. Social media, I assume, is one of them. and That was the main thing that accelerated it. Political polarization was already happening. Runaway homophily is a term I use a lot, which is basically just people self-sorting and becoming more politically polarized. I think that actually some of the runaway homophily is one of the reasons why you saw the increase in depression. Depressed people finding other depressed people talk to only depressed people, get more depressed. Totally, yeah. You are the average of your five friends. So if you want to be depressed, simple, just like hang out with some other people who are depressed. Don't join the Depeche Mode fan group. (laughs) As much as I love them, don't get me wrong. (laughs) Oh, I love Depeche Mode. They're a great band. My first tape and one of my first CD was some great reward. Oh, okay. The thing that accelerated stuff was social media. And I know that at this point, people are so tired of hearing this theory that people are kind of like, oh, was it really that big of a change? I spend some time of Canceling the American Mind talking about my big history project in law school, which was looking into print licensing in Tudor England, as boring as that may sound. Does sound quite boring, actually. Was yeah. it? <laughs> It was my own invention. Like I was super psyched. I remember actually telling one of my friends that this is a project I'm working on. And he actually said, who made you do that? And I'm like, it's my passion project. That's one of the things I love about people is people are passionate about like the wildest stuff. And I'm like, oh, okay, cool. All right, great. Like I love these like little insects, you know. It's so humanizing. <laughs> it's one of those things where it's kind of like, now if you're excited about that, I, I yeah, like that. Go about for you. it. I wanted to figure out the origins of prior restraint doctrine in the United States, which basically means it's considered an extra big sin in the First Amendment to say, nobody can publish a book that makes the following argument. That's called a prior restraint. It exists before you even publish. And this comes from Henrician and Elizabethan Tudor England, where Henry VIII started clamping down on the printing press, starting with policing books in 1521. Was it like anti-Catholicism stuff? The funny thing was, in 1521, he was still a Catholic. Oh, yeah, sorry, good point. Okay, he hasn't switched yet. That's when he became defender of the faith. So initially, he was going after Tyndale Bibles, which were English translations that were apparently more Protestanty. But then, by 1538, he's got this new lady. He was just a full-on censorer. He didn't really care what he wanted to censor. He just liked to censor things. In 1538, he had this print licensing program. Nothing can be printed in the entire country unless your printing press is licensed by the crown, which was a smart and low-cost way to control what actually got printed in the first place. What this was a response to ultimately was the printing press, the original disruptive technology. And people have to remember, the printing press led to an increase in the witch trials, massive increase in witch trials. The book The Maleficorum, that was one of the best sellers, unfortunately, of the early days of the printing press. It led to massive civil and religious strife, 200 years of war, arguably, because of the printing press. But that's what happens when you even get just a few more million eyes on any problem or a few more million voices talking to each other. Social media is a few billion or billion additional eyes on every problem. So there's no way it's not going to be extremely disruptive because people forget how unnatural it is that people can kind of automatically instantly talk to the planet anytime they want. The printing press led to also massive scientific revolution and new types of thought of political type of thought, which ended up like generally pretty good for the world and lots of other kind of like really interesting innovations. All features also have bugs. You can't make it perfect. So would you like wiped away social media or you just take it even with all the bad stuff? This is the reason why I'm still somewhat of a techno optimist at some level, because the printing press had all of these terrible effects. Ultimately, boon for the human race. Scientific revolution, the democratic revolution. I would say printing press is on net net quite good. Totally net positive. Yeah, I'm very happy we had it. (laughs) But in the short term, it seemed like an infernal device that was just not worth it, at least to people like Henry VIII. And I feel like that's kind of where we are with social media right now, is we have a billion eyes on additional problems, and that can tear down any person, any idea, or any institution. It can't build yet. 
it's good at taking things down, not necessarily good at building things up. But it doesn't have to stay that way. I've been working with a company called Integrally about trying to build a social media platform that's towards truth. It has to be more rule bound, but something where the goal is not just cancel culture and cat videos. I love cat videos, to be clear. I love them. I like dog videos personally. Yeah, that's fair. Something that can use those additional billion eyes for something productive. The same way that the printing press eventually became this massive engine of disconfirmation, which helps you weed out bad ideas from good ideas, to get rid of the fallacious ones. Social media still has the possibility, particularly if structured somewhat differently, to do that. But in the short term, it's havoc. My alma mater, UC Berkeley, definitely did not rank very well on your university of free speech. Berkeley, in some ways, was somewhat of the birthplace of the free speech movement in 1964, which, you know, crazy enough is 60 years ago. Like, if we were able to, like, interview Mario Savio today, like, what would he be saying? I still consider myself a liberal. I'm not embarrassed to say that, even though, like, more progressives on the left will dismiss me as right wing. But it's also because I know the polling. When I look at what the center left actually looks like, I'm solidly in that. We've ended up with institutions that are so skewed and so super majority progressive that it's kind of skews their entire perspective on the whole. Everybody's right wing as far as they're concerned. That gets used as a tactic to dismiss people just immediately. I mean, I just read an article claiming that people who believe cancel culture is real are neo-Confederates and fascists, and their dupes include the ACLU and the New York (laughs) Times, which is like, wow, okay, you're really going for it here. But there's been a, a long tension between the hippie libertarian left, which is more my tradition, and people like Nadine Strawson. I don't know who that is. Former head of the ACLU. Ira Glasser, who's the former executive director of the ACLU, is actually on our advisory council. And Nadine, who was the president of the board of the ACLU for all those years, is now actually a senior fellow at FIRE. I get to write with her. But then there were the people who actually still like the idea of an authoritarian utopian paradise. Stalin was never a free speech person. <laughs> he really wasn't. Yeah, yeah. And now hearing people be like, oh, well, Lenin wasn't. So like, what are you saying? <laughs> we talk about in the book people like Herbert Marcuse, whose idea of fixing Marxism was to, well, the proletariat doesn't seem to really like intellectuals. So how about Marxism with intellectuals at the top, but then allied with the marginalized? Actually, the term that Marcuse uses for the marginalized is ghetto populations, which would definitely get him canceled on the modern campus. But it was this kind of old-fashioned idea of the philosopher king. The smart people will save us, and the thing that's holding the smart people back are those damn freedoms that we all have. So there's been this very serious tension when I was in school in the 90s between what I would call the left and liberals. And I honestly felt like liberals were the ones who were winning at the time. We do seem to be going a little bit more towards the revival of utopian authoritarianism being the sign of someone who's smart and good of heart, which is terrifying to me. Now, in The Calling American Mind, you talk a lot about this idea of safetyism that's happening. There's like this broader issue of, I don't know if it's social media per se, of like coddling our children that's happening all the time. What are the roots of that? I wrote a short book in 2014 called Freedom From Speech, which is still probably my favorite title of anything I've written. And it basically made the argument, to name drop again, Steve Pinker is on our advisory council. I was trying to explain why I don't disagree with him that an awful lot of things in human society are way better than they've ever been, but also that there's a category of things that will necessarily get worse because of increased comfort and increased progress. I call it in Freedom from Speech Problems of Comfort. We call it Problems of Progress in Coddling the American Mind. By almost any definition of progress, being able to be around people who share your values, to be able to not have to be under as much physical strain, to be able to have a more pleasant life, all of these things are things that would be considered progress. But because democratic deliberation, freedom of speech, search for truth, those all require conflict and those all require pain, that if you're having a society that's better insulated from these difficulties, you can expect appreciation for freedom of speech to go down. Wealthier societies turning somewhat away from freedom of speech is kind of predictable. I think it's the same thing for parenting, that essentially as society gets safer, as parents, they're investing in fewer kids, and they have more time to worry about their kids, that they're going to be increasingly obsessed with safety. I also think that 
partially the political bifurcation in the United States and also the gender bifurcation, by the way, which is fascinating, where young men are becoming increasingly conservative and young women are becoming increasingly more left-leaning. The gender gap is, is about as big as it's ever been in the U.S. It's crazy. Got to wonder what it's going to mean for the American family when they also pull them. They don't want to marry each other. Yeah. <laughs> I tend to think that obsession over safety is kind of predictable, particularly when you don't have that kind of balancing each other out. The person who's more safety first and above all is a sacred value, which is what we define as safety. And someone who might be more representative of older thinking about it, that it's kind of like challenges are good for you. All of this kind of stuff that ends up sounding cliche, but also is filled with wisdom. I think that safetyism is one of those things that is a predictable problem of progress that can only be rebalanced by a conscious effort to understand the limitations of obsessing over safety. And even though Coddling the American Mind has reached so many people, the book continues to sell like it's a new, a new book, and I'm extremely proud of it. I feel like people are missing some of the fundamental messages of it. We have to get away from a culture of safetyism. We have to have more time for kids to experience life on their own. It's one of the reasons why at the end of the book, we, for example, really advocate for students taking at least a year off between high school and college to actually get a sense of self-efficacy. Now, when I was a kid, the crazy parents, really the only crazy parents, were the immigrant parents. And now that I'm a parent, it seems like all of us parents are insane and crazy. We're all insanely involved in our kids' lives. We all know like every little, like my, my parents had no idea even my teacher's names. How did that happen? We're just investing so much more time now in understanding things about our kids. We're investing so much of our own worth as parents into the kid's outcome. Is it because college is more important than it was or is it because... I don't know. We have nothing left to brag about. So the only thing we can brag about is our kids. Why is that going on? I think this is at least in part a symptom of the sort of winner takes all. And if you get into a fancy, you feel like you're set for life. But they're now very, very difficult to get into. We had six causal theories in Coddling the American Mind. We added a seventh after Coddling came out, which was a class stratification. We didn't want to say income inequality because like income inequality can just mean a few billionaires. What we mean is there being kind of like an entire sort of economic class that makes substantially more than the rest of the population, but is easy to fall out of. I forget who it was. Ironreich dubbed this the fear of falling, that essentially like the paranoia about your kid, God forbid, falling into the middle or even lower classes, of the United States hierarchy. Understandably all things being equal, that's what you want for your kids. You want your kids to have as much of a sure thing as you can actually provide for them. Now, the problem is this leads to Francis Fukuyama's concern about one of the great forces that devastate societies, period. And unfortunately, he, he made the term way too long. Repatrimonialization. That essentially when societies revert the more ancient model where it's who you know, who your family and friends are, becomes that much more important. So I think that the obsession with working all the time and having all the extracurriculars and all this kind of stuff so you can get into one of the fancies and then be relatively set makes sense in the current sort of incentivized environment we have. And we have to figure out ways to change those incentives. If you think, remember the Varsity Blues scandal from a few years ago? You have these people, they were like the average person who has got in trouble there, I think worth in the hundreds of millions of dollars. It's not like they couldn't like help set up their kid buy their kid a house. And then these kids were all like pretty smart. They were basically doing all these crazy illegal things to get them from the number 50 rank school to the number 25 rank school. <laughs> yeah. Were they really going to be that much better off if they, instead of like one kid was like got into Arizona, but instead of going to Arizona, they were trying to get him into USC. Like they're both fine schools. Really was that kid going to like change their life? They were already worth hundred million dollars just because they went to USC. I don't get it. What's going on there? When it comes to that, I think they're probably mentally exaggerating the difference in anyone's perception between Arizona and USC. But there's something in it where people care so much about the prestige of the name of this university. Doubtless some of it's bragging value. Bragging, yeah, to your friends. You're at the club and you got to brag to your friends about it. Yeah. The idea of saying in the upper classes or getting to them is one of those things that people are understandably feeling some amount of tension about. The Varsity Blue Scandal was embarrassing. It was strange. And California surrendered to them and let the parents win. And this is what I mean by that. Somehow, right around the time of the Varsity Blue Scandal, 
California schools decided to start dropping the aptitude tests, the SAT, et cetera. And it's kind of like, okay, so the one thing that would keep some of these kids out of a USC, you're just dropping it now. <laughs> totally. So now in the future, the parents with $100 million can get their kid into USC. Yeah, it's no problem. That is easy. That becomes a lot easier if you don't have an SAT for them to fake. Exactly. Without having to pretend there's some kind of world-class scimitar fighter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In many cases in the Varsity Blues, they were sending a fake person to take the SAT for them and stuff like that, like an actor to go take the SAT. That seems really hard to do if you don't have to do that one step. It's a lot easier to get your kid into these schools. Except to bribe the sailing. It was a lot of it was the sailing instructor that they were bribing, essentially. And that's one of the reasons why I think a lot of the dropping of exams are going to work to the benefit of upper class and upper middle class parents. Of course, they know how to play the game. They know how to play the game, but also, okay, so like this person would normally wouldn't get into my school because they have terrible SATs, but their parents have a couple hundred million dollars. They could be a pretty good alum, so maybe I'll let them in. Also, you don't know that they have terrible SATs now, so you don't have a good excuse not to let them in. Exactly. Well, welcome aboard. We have a Sunday bar. I mean, look, if someone had hundreds of million dollars want to come to my school, I'd probably be like, all right, you know, if they seem reasonable, maybe I'll get a nice bonus as a college administrator from it or something like that. The incentives are all weird. It's one of the things that I obsess about more than I probably should, just figure out different ways to you know, reform K through 12, reform higher ed. We spent about a third of the book talking about potential ways to reform. Fire My Organization just came out with a list of 10 things that schools can do to better serve the search for truth and to better protect free speech, academic freedom, but also discourse. There's lots of ideas out there. My fear is that I feel like since October 7th, people aren't really sure what to make of it, but a lot of Americans got the sense of like, wow, there's something really weird. There's something really amiss on campus at the moment. Unless we take that as an opportunity to actually go for more meaningful reform, we're going to miss an opportunity to reform something that's been in a weird direction for a long time. Now, you and I have been friends for a long time. Outside of free speech, one of the other areas that I feel like you have just an immense amount of knowledge about is mental health. Oh, I thought you were going to say comic books. <laughs> oh, comic books. Okay. Well, we can talk about that later because I'm really into comic books. We'll nerd out that I actually didn't really know that about you. Let's say you and I were decide to co-author a book and the title is going to be How to Be Unhappy. Maybe we create a manual if we want to guarantee someone's going to be unhappy. What's the manual? What's the steps of like, hey, we can ensure you will be unhappy if you just follow these steps? It's kind of funny. A little story about how we ended up with the great untruths in Cod Lake of the American Mind. We have this device where a guru gives us the worst possible advice you could give to somebody. We reached a point when Kite and I were working on the book where we we're going so down into like the ideology that I said to him, John, we're starting to write a book I don't want to read. <laughs> <laughs> we came up with the device of the great untruths as a way of saying, okay, this is what you shouldn't do. The three great untruths that we have in there are what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. It's just terrible advice to think of yourself as fragile and easily permanently damaged. Always follow your feelings, which it sounds nice for two seconds. And then you're like, oh, wait, actually, that's a terrible idea. Life is a battle between good people and evil people, which is just a very simplified kind of tribal politics. And in canceling, we add a fourth great untruth, which is no bad person has any good opinion. <laughs> <laughs> totally. That's a good way to be unhappy. And if you follow these four easy steps, you will be miserable. In the great untruth number two, the always follow your feelings. We talk about cognitive behavioral therapy and something that saved my life, no exaggeration, which is all about getting in the habit, and I always stress the habit, because knowing this intellectually will do you no good. You actually have to take the time, and when you have a thought that's exaggerated... Catastrophize. Yeah. When you're catastrophizing... I'm the worst person in the world! Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you need to take it down and then say, like, is this catastrophizing? Is this mind reading? Is this binary thinking? And then, of course, you know, it might be all of these things. And then by the time you're done using some rational analysis, you find yourself a little less upset. And over time, a lot of these depressive voices in your head or in my head, they just don't sound as convincing anymore. My premise from 2014 up is that it's like we're telling students currently, do catastrophize, do mind read, do engage in binary thinking, because that's what good people do. And by the way, we are all screwed and you are fragile. If you really want to make people seriously unhappy, it seems like a very good manual for some of these things. Some of these ideas even have merit, but like they are sure to make people very, very sad. The thing that I didn't emphasize as much 
in coddling, but emphasizing a little bit more sense, is that a lot of this comes from the idea that if I teach students global warming is something that's definitely going to kill you unless you take political action, that there is horrible injustice in the world and people are against you and that means you take action, that a lot of these cognitive distortions are rationalized, that teaching students to think in these kind of apocalyptic terms. If the world is going to end, unless I do something, then, well, it seems reasonable I should go do that thing. Yeah, it's to promote them to positive action. There's a couple things that are really messed up about this. One, you are saying to yourself, in order for there to be positive political action, I need to make you miserable, paranoid. But also it's bad psychology because miserable, anxious, and depressed people are not effective at changing the world in any positive way. They tend to have really bad ideas, really extreme ideas on how to fix it, or just get hopeless. What about this idea of victimhood? I feel like even if you are a victim, you kind of don't want to think of yourself that way. There are plenty of people who are really truly are victims. You kind of want to have like the chip on your shoulder a bit, like I'll show you type of thing. Imagine if like you're completely discriminated against all the time. You want to be like, I'm going to show you who's better. Like I'm going to rise up. To me, that seems like a much better way of dealing with it. If you truly see yourself as a victim, you're almost certainly going to be unhappy. Obviously, like the victimhood mentality, it comes from the idea that we want to help the oppressed, we want to help the disadvantaged, and it comes from kind of a noble place. But it's become something that has taken on disproportionate significance. And it actually also, something we talk a lot about in Canceling of the American Mind, is a dysfunctional way of arguing. That essentially, it's a way of winning arguments without winning arguments is to basically talk about oppression. And unfortunately, if you incentivize it as a way that will actually help you win arguments, it does lead to people thinking of themselves as victims. If you keep saying it enough times, you will think it. You will think it. There was something that I was asked to do a show, and I think people thought it was kind of funny, but it was someone trying to get out of a DUI ticket by talking about being non-binary and being Native American and like trying to use all the sort of oppression terms to get out of a DOI. And they asked me what I thought about it. And I think I was supposed to think it was funny. I'm like, I think this is incredibly sad. I think this woman really believes and has been taught and has been encouraged to think of herself. Oh, this isn't fiction. This was actually like happened in real life. This was a for real situation. I also felt very bad for the police officer who kept on saying, I'm sorry, ma'am. It's like, I'm not a ma'am. I'm not binary. And he didn't like, he was just having a very hard time <laughs> figuring out like how to talk to her in a way that she'd approve of. But at the same time, I felt profoundly sorry for her. These are ways to imagine yourself as disempowered, to destroy your idea of an internal locus of control. If you want to make people depressed, teach them that they have no power over their own world. That's one of the quickest ways to make someone depressed. All right, a couple personal questions before you leave. I'd heard somewhere that you read the entire Bible recently. (laughs) Yes, I did. What did you learn? I thought it was fascinating. I did that a few years ago. I thought it was awesome. I couldn't believe I had never read the whole Bible before. I'm like, this is kind of an important book. By the way, I made myself even read and not stop, not skip the parts where they're kind of like, well, the hem of the dress needs to be, the hem of the garment needs to be this long. Leviticus is like literally the worst written book I've ever read. It's so long. Excruciating detail about everything that the temple needs. I'm like, this is an OCD person who wrote this for sure. Totally. <laughs> Such a difference between d- different books. I'm going to piss some people off by saying this. I found the book of Daniel surprisingly irritating. He's the advisor to kings who are hundreds of years (laughs) apart from each other. But the book of Isaiah is trippy. The book of Job. Uh, Job is an amazing, amazing, amazing book. Yeah. Clearly three different books too, though. I mean, like there's this starting part. There's just kind of like it's a normal kind of Bible tale. And then this guy wants to go to court to argue against God and he's winning. It becomes this incredible intellectual adventure. And then at the end, suddenly God pops up and convinces God that he's real and loving. But God's argument seems to be that he's really busy, occupied with (laughs) Leviathan and animals giving birth out in the savannah. And then suddenly Job gets everything back and he's rich and happy again. No way that was the original ending of this book. I feel like there's no way. I'm a big fan of the book of Judges which I think of as like the original comic book, because it's all about heroes, some of whom have superpowers. But there's a moment in Judges where it reads like there's a serious person writing it, and then like a 11-year-old kid jumps into it with this really gross-out story about killing this fat guy. And it's really graphic about the whole process of like 
murdering this dude. And I'm like, okay, that was kind of weird. Since I was raised Catholic, baptized Russian Orthodox, I actually remember the New Testament as being really boring. It was much more action-packed than I remembered. I was kind of like, okay, yeah, there's some cool stuff in there. It's good. I had never read the New Testament until a few years ago. And however religious anybody is listening to this podcast, I highly recommend it. I mean, if you're super religious, read it again. If you've never read it before, it's incredibly interesting. I could read the book of Genesis all day. And it's cool because it's got stuff kind of like, it's clearly like hearkening back to moments when families were smaller. It feels like it's a little bit of a window on the oral tradition going back into time infinite (laughs) that has been passed down to some degree. All right, last two questions we ask everybody. What is a conspiracy theory that you believe? I, for a while there, kind of thought that maybe Putin killed Anthony Bourdain. Whoa. Okay. I never heard this theory. Oh, no, it's my own. Anthony Bourdain did an episode of No Reservations, the one that he did for CNN. And the guy that he did it with in Russia was killed by Putin. He was a critic of the regime. He got shot in Moscow. and Nobody ever found out who the killer was. He was a major critic of Putin. There's moments in it when Anthony Bourdain will look right at the camera and talk about Putin being the, like this short little, he really lays into Putin. And I'm kind of like, okay, if the other guy got killed, maybe... I'm not like, okay, rather just a very tragic suicide. But definitely when it initially happened, I'm like, oh my God, that would be the second person in that show who died under mysterious causes. That's my craziest one, which I no longer fully believe in. By the way, actually, even when I kind of believed in it, I would peg my belief in it at a height of about 36%. <laughs> okay, I got it. It was one over E or whatever. <laughs> Last question we ask all of our guests, what conventional wisdom or advice do you think is generally bad advice? That's the three great untruths. Always trust your feelings. It is completely terrible advice. People pick on Darwin, for example, of making a pro con list about getting a wife. And I'm like, no, I probably everybody should do that. You should just go do a pro con list of should I marry this person or something like that. Taking some rationality breaks to check yourself is generally a good practice. Did you do that before you got married or? <laughs> I did not. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Interesting. Well, thank you. Greg Lukyanov for joining us on World of Das. I follow you at G Lukyanov on Twitter. I definitely encourage our listeners to engage with you there. This has been a ton of fun. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Oren. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of Das, and Das is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you. World of Das is brought to you by SafeGraph. SafeGraph is geospatial data for physical places. Check it out at safegraph.com. And by Flex Capital. Flex Capital invests in data companies like those we talk about at World of Das. Check it out at flexcapital.com.